0: money is its own form of power. As community organisers say, power is organised people and organised money. One of the challenges that changemakers face is how to find the money needed to resource the work of social change. There are plenty of philanthropists, but that doesn't mean there are plenty of resources for creative changemaking. How could this be changed? Today's Changemaker chat is with Martha McKenzie. Martha leads Civic Power based in the United Kingdom. Civic Power is trying to change UK and global philanthropy by showing the impact that they can have if they fund community organising. When she uses the phrase community organising, she's talking about a way of working that focuses on self-determination, power and solidarity. This chat explores the power of organising and changing cultures of philanthropy. She shares powerful insights useful for people working in the funding space and for organisers and community leaders who are looking for strategies to attract more resources for their work. So, let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemaker Chats. Conversations with people changing the world. Changemakers also produces episodes that are feature stories about social change campaigns. Changemakers is supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers, and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy dash lab. You can find out more about Changemakers on our website. We can also sign up to our email list. It's changemakerspodcast.org. Martha, welcome to Changemakers thank you so much for having me and not just having you but having you here we are face to face in the city of london we're on tour it's so exciting i'm delighted to be having this conversation with you so let's start one question we always ask our 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 guests is to is to explain to our listeners what kind of
1: change maker they are so right now i run an organization called the civic power fund And the Civic Power Fund is trying to get lots more money into grassroots community organizing. So we're trying to make change by totally shifting the power and the scale of resource for the work that's really happening at a local level to build better democracies and win long-term change. Oh, how fantastic. I mean,
0: more money for good organizing at the local level, It it sounds like an incredibly important and worthy cause. And then the obvious thing that it brings to mind is, why on earth did you decide to dedicate your life to, to this work? And so what I'd love you to do is, you know, with that in mind, but, but also just where does this all come from? Where does the importance of, you know, community organising and also the importance of, of funding funding community organising, where does that come from
1: for you go back as far as makes sense? Well... I essentially started my career in community organizing and right about the time that I was graduating from university, I was lucky enough to work with an organization called Citizens UK, who are an incredible long-standing organizing group based in the UK. And at that really formative time, I learned all about organizing, not just as a technique that really wins, but also as a kind of an approach that really builds long term power through relationships. And that combination of impact and how really got me hooked. And can I ask, like, even, like, why were you interested in having
0: impact like that? Like, where does that come from for you?
1: Well, I've been thinking about this a lot more as I've gotten older. And I think for me, it really goes back to my mum, if I'm honest. And I grew up in quite a political household. And the reason I grew up in a political household is that my mum grew up herself in quite challenging circumstances. And her life was completely transformed by a government that brought in free education. And she never forgot that. So we learned kind of from the moment we could listen that politics could be a force for good if you engaged with it. And we therefore had this responsibility to engage in politics and see it as part of how we built a better world. So some of my earliest memories are kind of walking around my local area, knocking on doors, campaigning for elections, being part of her work. And she was a local councillor. So one of the ways that she gave back was becoming elected herself, really getting involved and throwing herself behind politics and encouraging us to see it as just that, that force for good. Yeah. But I think for me, it also relates a bit to faith. And I was raised as a Catholic and I don't have faith anymore. And maybe we can have a separate (laughs) conversation about that another time. But That sense of being raised from a very early age in Catholic social teachings and this idea of loving my neighbor, not just being words, but being something that was so true and the sense of community and duty and responsibility. And I think those two things very much from an early age convinced me that I didn't want to be sort of passive when it came to politics and community. I really wanted to be active and so I always knew it was something I was interested in. And I went off to university kind of feeling really passionate about changing the world. And, and I had a real turning point during the 2010 general election where I was lucky enough to work for my local MP during that election. And his story was quite incredible. He'd been a member of the cabinet and then nearly lost his seat. And he promptly resigned from the cabinet, come back to his local area and focused all of his attention on his constituents. And instead of kind of just knocking on doors and asking people to vote for him, he spent years knocking on doors and saying, how are you? How can we help? Who are you? And he got to know every member of that constituency and he built bonds with them and he built networks and he provided, again, politics as this sense of a force for good. And I learned from that MP at a really formative time. And as I said, was working with him in 2010, which was another general election. And in that general election, everyone else in his party had a torrid time and he totally bucked the trend and he massively increased his majority and won this kind of stonking victory. And he did that through essentially a form of community organizing. Mm. So I think for me, that kind of combination of forces that when I actually encountered organising and met Citizens UK and saw that there was a practice that had been doing this for generations and that really believed that that kind of community level is how you achieve change and make politics a force for good, it just all clicked.
0: Yeah, I can, and I love the fact that you do connect it to obviously the, the life and experience of your mum in political life, but also that practice of the common good that comes through the church life as being sort of... different. I mean, we all have different threads, right, that that, that bring out... animate our purpose in public life, and I can see that in you. But then actually seeing it matters. Like, we can have those beliefs, but it's t- turning those beliefs into action. So seeing someone who could do it. And so then, so what did you do? What happened next?
1: Well... So as I said, I I started learning from Citizens UK and getting very involved in organizing. And I then also became a student leader myself. So I was president of my student union and decided to run that like an organizing unit essentially and built student leaders across the university. And I had a kind of turning point moment at the end of that where I could have gone and and become a full-time organizer or I had an offer to go and work for a housing and homelessness charity called Shelter. And in the end, I took the offer to go and work for Shelter and again, I've thought a lot about why I made that decision. And I think deep down, it, it came a bit from a place of fear that organizing as a practice where I would have had to raise my own salary. It was a real unknown. It just it felt very scary at that point in time. And so I took the role with Shelter, but went off to kind of try and make sure that through my professional life, those lessons of organizing and that sense of people powered change being how we make the difference, see if I could embed that through my work. I ended up working much more in the kind of advocacy and public affairs field. So I led private renting, influencing for shelter. I then went to work for Save the Children. And I was their head of government relations for a number of years. So led that influencing with the UK government across a range of different issues. And then I went to work for UNICEF, the UN Children's Agency. Oh my goodness, you've been everywhere. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I went off to New York. And again, did a range of things there, but also ended up leaving their COVID-19 advocacy strategy and then taking on humanitarian advocacy portfolio. And I kind of got to this turning point moment where if I looked back on my career, I could see that the most influential work had all been the work that had been really powered by people. So at Shelter, we'd won victories around revenge eviction or no-fault eviction, and that had been powered by tenants coming forward and organizing themselves. At Save the Children, we'd won some incredible victories around basically working parents having access to the money they needed for childcare, mm. And that, again, had been self-organizing and those parents coming forward. And I'd kind of found myself at the UN knowing that I was a person that believed change was only possible if you were accountable to communities and the best change was bottom up. And I just felt so far away from that. And I had this real moment that actually it was time, it was time to get back to those roots. And at the same time as all that was happening, I was reflecting on the role of philanthropy. And throughout my career, I'd just seen that philanthropy has this huge and outsized role on the various tactics that we pursue, Mm. particularly in the change space, because advocacy and campaigning is hard to raise money for. And that was around the time that the Civic Power Fund essentially came knocking. And some people I knew and respected were working hard back in the UK to sort of challenge this sense of, why are we not investing in organizing and what would it look like to really kind of build and nourish the organizing field in the uk and it just felt like too good an opportunity to walk away from um, so that's how i got involved with civic power and, and found myself back here doing this work oh my goodness there's like a
0: million questions packed into that i'm going to start with the civic power question but we're going to come back to the fact that you've had this experience in so many different forms of people power you know that you, the, your passion is for organising, but that you have a sense and an understanding of different forms of advocacy, of mobilisation, of of working at big NGOs, the United Nations, as well as grassroots like that. Having that spectrum, putting organising in the in that spectrum of of forms of people, I think, is a really interesting. A, you bring to the this you bring to the table a really interesting set of experiences. But let's start where you just left, which is about civic power. So, you know. Our audience has got plenty of people, many of them are not um, from the UK. And so they'll be going, what is this Civic Power? Tell us, tell, us, tell us a little bit more about this challenge that you experienced with philanthropy and why uh,
1: Civic Power got created and, and in a sense what it is too. So Civic Power, we're pretty new. And we're an independent intermediary funder focused specifically on grassroots organizing. Now, there's a lot of jargon there. I was going to say, is that an
0: (laughs) elevator (laughs) pitch?
1: It sounds like a very (laughs) well-rehearsed elevator pitch. And I'm impressed. Oh, you wouldn't believe. (laughs) Um, But essentially what we do is we raise money primarily from trusts, foundations, philanthropists who are passionate about social justice. And we redistribute it to grassroots groups doing community organizing. And we're you're like, like Robin Hood. No, <laughs> no, no it's not, you're not the first person to make that comparison. <laughs> I think we should wear it more proudly. Yes. We're really driven by two quite significant overarching factors. So we share quite a deep concern about the state of democracy. Mm. And we're just hearing from communities over and over again. They just feel completely disenfranchised from our politics. And our politics is suffering as a result. And the communities who are hardest hit by cost of living, by the climate crisis, are just being left behind as a result. And organising is this tried and tested method that just reconnects us to our politics, builds bonds between us and builds a much better political future but we're also really driven by big picture social justice. And again, a shared sense that right across the social justice funding landscape, but also campaigning landscape, we're significantly underinvesting in the grassroots groups that are fighting for their own rights mm-hmm. and that are on the front lines doing this work. And that's a justice issue now because those groups should have the money to fight their own oppressions, but it's also a strategy issue in that if we don't build an enduring base of people power, we are constantly gonna be on the back foot and again, grassroots organizing. It's why the problems keep happening, right? Because we're not strong enough to challenge them. It's exactly. a power question. Yeah. It's totally a power question, which is why it's in the name, right? Yeah, like, yeah, there's yeah. no version of this that doesn't involve kind of rethinking power. And that's civic, people-driven power. So that's kind of why we exist. And... We're trying to shift the funding landscape by pooling resources so that we've got funders like really working together and putting sizable resource behind this practice, but also then doing things a little bit differently ourselves, so trying to break down some of the funding barriers, make it easier for groups to access those resource, provide funding that is long-term, that is rooted in what communities want and need, and using this as a catalyst to try and build that enduring base of power. So I want to dig into this question
0: about the fact that you fund community organising because I think that is, and, and, and in doing so, I'm going to get you to talk about what, you know your definition and approach to community organising because you know there's so many different ways we can use that phrase, right? You could, you know, you've worked in lots of different with lots of different types of people power, and you know, I'm sure the work at Shelter was different to the work at Citizens was different to the work that you saw in politics, you know, like there's lots of different forms, but you've chosen to work at an organisation, civic power that does community organizing, what is so important and appealing about that practice? I mean, you've mentioned some, the scale, the local, but tell us more about what's so appealing in that practice. And and I, I guess, and, and why it's needed, you know what I mean? Like why, why it needs the resources too.
1: Yeah, it's just, it's just such an important question and I, I'm gonna talk for ages, so, so okay, please well, cut me off. Um, get ready, listeners, get ready, listeners. <laughs> So I think there's three things about organizing that make it really unique. One is the focus on self-determination. And just that sense of we know, we know throughout history, and we know through every successful change movement that the long-term change is won by affected communities driving and demanding their own liberation. We just know that. And the fact that we've kind of lost that in a way from 20th and 21st century charity and action. The sort of culture of representation of doing for people has eked
0: its way in, it's sort of, it's damaged this.
1: It really has. And I think... That's the number one for us, that organizing as a practice is is rooted in what people themselves want and need Mm. and really allowing them to be the kind of architects of their own future. So that kind of unflinching commitment to self-determination is key. The second thing is that focus on, on power. Like organizing teaches us where our power actually comes from, which makes for much better change strategies. And I love that quote by, by the organizer Jay McCleavy around the only real advantage ordinary people have over elites is numbers. Mm. And it's so true. And that sense of organizing as a practice teaching us what our own power is, but also how we might confront other forms of power and how we build power and how we win. So I think for us, it's that kind of real rooted grounding and understanding in power. But then the third area is very much solidarity. We, we can't win on our own, that's mm. the point. We have to build bridges. We have to find rather than points of difference, points of commonality. And that itself makes for a much better kind of political system, a much better society, a much better community. And so for us, that's something we, we kind of term that the Civic Power Fund, the, the community organizing equation, that when you add those three things together through the practice of organizing, which is that listening, that building of relationships and then that action, you get. A better politics because people understand it. Politics is accountable to them. People can access decision makers and make change. But you also get long-term systemic wins, which is what ultimately yeah. we're all striving for. So it's, it's a democracy. It's a
0: democracy fix, as well as an issue fix. You do two things in one. <laughs> exactly.
1: And I had, um, I had the, the real privilege, Marshall Gantz is in the UK at the moment mm. and had the real privilege of going to hear him speak on Monday night. And it was just brilliant as you'd expect. And he had this like incredible slide that I kind of, I wish I could show, you, show your listeners as to why we do organising. And it's coming back to that sense of the three different things that organising does. It, it wins, yes. That's non-negotiable, but it also builds organizations. It builds Mm. communities. It builds those bases and spaces that can actually hold people power over the long term. And it transforms the individual. It helps us understand our own agency, our role in society. And there are lots of other things that win. Mobilizing is needed and it can win. Advocacy is needed and it can win. Litigation is needed and it can win, but it doesn't do those two other things. None of those things do those other two things. And it's coming back to saying, we're interested in making change there is an ecosystem that we need to invest in and yet this bit of the puzzle that is so unique that is so durable and that has time and time again been the basis of successful movements seems to be the bit we're chronically under investing in and that just can't yeah. continue and and is chronically not well
0: understood you know like i think that you know, you're you're an expert now in, in philanthropy, like I think that there's often a culture, but it's also in other parts of people power, so I'm mobilising where people think that you measure success by how many wins you've got, you know, or how many things you've built or whatever. There's something really intangible in, in this democracy building, in the institution building, it's harder to measure that stuff, but we know that if we don't have that stuff, you, you you don't sustain the wins medium term long term you just can't because that's the that's the thing that gives the, the people power is the gift that keeps on giving right
1: yeah I, I couldn't agree with you more and that sense of shifting mindsets in terms of how we measure impact is is absolutely key to this mission that as you said it's not that well understood and it does require quite a cultural reset in terms of how most of our organizations are set up to really invest in this work for the long term but the thing I always find interesting in, in conversation with funders and others that are worried about that sort of lack of measurability is, and you know this, Amanda, organisers are obsessed with evaluation. I know. They're obsessed with impact.
0: Part of the organising life cycle, you know.
1: <laughs> they don't know a group of people. That's how, everyone That's how the leaders transform is through the process of evaluating what worked and what didn't work. I Exactly that. And I think it's, it's kind of making the connection between those two things. If you see organising in practice and recognise that, yes, it's often organic and yes, it's deeply rooted, but it's also a craft and it's Mm. learned and it's studied and it's practiced and it is embedded in constant improvement and constant evaluation. I think that sort of fear of the unknown might be lessened. And that's one of the things we're trying to do is connect the dots between Organisers are their harshest critics. Organisers are the ones that learn, that evaluate, that are constantly thinking about impact and change. And so we don't have to be worried when it comes to investing in organisers about that long term. But we do have to think a little bit about redefining impact and moving beyond some of the binaries that we've got stuck in.
0: Yes, yes, yes. In vanity projects, right? Like, let's just call it out. Like wanting to fund something so you look good, so you can point at it isn't actually necessarily what the world needs. But working out how you can create an understanding for and and, and can see the development of change that happens over time in a you know whether it's broad-based organizing or other forms of community organizing We, we need to create that for people too we can't just there's a reason why people go for the projects that are visible because they want to know that they're making a difference we need to be able to help them learn about the the ones that are less visible so it makes me go, okay, cool. So we've got a, we've got a beautiful but somewhat um, dis- distant philanthropic sector that's not necessarily knowing that it needs to or wants to fund organizing, even though probably it's pretty values aligned actually in terms of its broad interests, it's quite connected, but but it's not funding this kind of work. I'm interested in sort of how you're having that conversation with funders like what was it like when you first started talking to funders about the need for organising what obstacles were coming your way what you know objections were coming your way and and what has shifted that or you know what what has allowed people to see things differently. Tell us a bit about that story.
1: Well, I noted earlier, you, you made a throwaway comment that I'm now an expert in philanthropy. And I, I certainly do not feel like an expert in philanthropy. I have to say that I'm still learning all of this on a day to day basis. I would say it does feel like things are shifting. Part of that is rooted in the pandemic and the resurgence of Black Lives Matter after the murder of George Floyd. There was a moment in time that not just funders, but all of us couldn't look away from the fact that many of the systems and processes we were upholding were inherently racist, were not responsive to what communities actually needed. And that kind of root and branch reform was desperately needed. So I think in terms of what catalyzed some of that change, actually, it was the groups working tirelessly behind the scenes that kind of burst out into the open in those moments and funders and others being confronted with the fact that the system itself was fundamentally broken. I think where we're at now, sort of two, three years later, is both a story of hope, but also a story of disappointment. And I think if you start with disappointment and you speak to groups, and and we recently did a really kind of extensive conversation and survey with organizers about their experience of funding, there is a sense that there was a lot of optimism during that time, that things could be con- done differently, that funding practices could change in a way that really boosted grassroots and practices like organising. And it's felt like that elastic band has snapped back a little bit, even mm-hmm. though the crises we're facing haven't dissipated at all. So I think there's a question and, and maybe we can dig into yeah, it a just bit saying, more.
0: Like, let's dig into it now. Like, why do you think that? Where do people think that snapped back? Why, why, why have people been able to turn away? What's getting in the way of change here?
1: I think fundamentally it comes back to this question of power and really being able to invest in organizing requires seeding power and control to communities. And that doesn't come naturally to most funders, to most organizations who are set up with their own internal accountabilities, who are set up to measure, as you've already said, very specific outcomes and see impact as something that they can attribute their actions to. This is a very, very different way of doing things. And it's okay to do things differently in a moment of crisis, but asking people to fundamentally shift their their working model and their assumptions about what their own impact looks like for the long term is a much, much harder challenge. So I think there's definitely a, a first thing, which is what are our shared values in this space and how can we get to a point where there's a collective understanding that this lasting impact that we seek, and I'm talking about social justice funders here, that there yeah. are others who are, who are less interested in social justice, but, but those that kind of wear that proudly, the only way we're actually gonna achieve it is if we shift power and control to communities. And that kind of reckoning, it still has to happen essentially, and there still has to be some sort of-
0: What's holding them back? I mean, you say they, they want their own power, they don't want to they don't want to see power it reminds me it happens everywhere right I work in a university to tell people to do co design or community led research as an agitation to the idea that they're the expert and they like being the expert you know like in this sense that people like to be able to be the decider, but that's not doesn't work right like we can, no one can achieve the change they need to achieve on their own we need to to work together with others and that means we can't have control. What is it that's do you th- have you got any insights as in particular what's ho- holding that more power for power over peace in place in philanthropy? I think one. And not th- to generalise, right? Of, of no, course, it's, people are shifting,
1: and da, da, da. it yeah. is. And I think you know, I, I said that there's a story of hope as well. And, oh, yes. and there is. <laughs> I there do is. Don't want to miss the story of hope. <laughs> there is, and, and I think people are having a different conversation. People are talking about movement building as being non-negotiable in terms of. Where we're funding and what we do next. People are having conversations about colonialism in philanthropy, racism in philanthropy. People are willing to be challenged. We're seeing lots of organizations explore participatory grant making, so, really trying to seed some power and control to communities to make decisions. So, there's lots of kind of so kernels and nuggets. Beats, yeah, seeds. Exactly, I love that. It's, it, there are seeds, but but what's it going to take to actually see that that growth and see that movement kind of above the grass tops into something more sustained and more long term? And I think there's there's something that's worth acknowledging that that this is scary, like asking organisations to change an operating model to seed power and control, to not have the same understanding of risk that they've had for the last 10, 20, 30, 40 years. This is big stuff. And I think maybe one of the things that collectively we have to confront is just honesty around the fact that a lot of this seems obvious. It's definitely necessary, but that doesn't mean it isn't really, really hard. And we're signing up to shift kind of systems and practices that have been embedded for decades. And so what does it look like to build the collective energy and collective interest in that? And Mm. I think that's a question we're still grappling with.
0: And what I like is that you're bringing organising principles to the process of working to being, bring philanthropy to organising, right? Like, you know, in organising, you know, as, as someone, you know, I have to confess people, I am a community organiser. I'm very sympathetic to the approach and we teach the Million Dialogue and in teaching the Million Dialogue, one of the things we talk about is, is, is the importance of pragmatic work as opposed to sort of wishful thinking, you know, and the idea that, that one shouldn't be self-righteous about how great you are. You need to, to be able to get in and have these effective conversations and I, I hear that in what you're saying, like... Organisers sitting around talking about how we're superior to inform in terms of achieving change and so amazing and people should just fund us because we're so amazing Might feel nice, right? Like pat each other on the back about how great we are It's not going to do achieve the change, right? It's not going to achieve the change that you're describing What you're describing is the application of organizing principles, which is pragmatic thinking uh, not wishful thinking to sort of go in and build the relationships where one can and sh- slowly shift these big institutions. In this case, the institutions being philanthropic institutions as opposed to decision-makers or churches or other um, other civic institutions. You're using those same principles to do that change.
1: That's, Trying. But that's the intention. <laughs> that is that is the intention. And that's, what, that's what's so wonderful about organising is it gives you... Basically, it gives you a, a playbook for so many things in life. And I, I always say that you again, going back to this question of impact, and it is is—it's important to understand whether what we set out to do is actually changing or happening. But I also think you never regret training someone in organizing because creating lots of individuals out there in the world with this understanding of how you achieve change, how you build relationships, how you kind of foster community, that is a good thing. And we, yeah. need, we need more of that. But I think it is that sense of like, how do we take people on a journey? And an organiser that that we've worked with and I've worked with for a long time. Um, Jack Madden, he's now at Shelter. Really, really respect. Like he's, I think, really well called out this question of what's the narrative of organising and how are we telling the story of organising and its potential for impact? And I definitely think that's part of it. Like right across the UK, there is incredible organizing work happening from from the big guys like Citizens UK, who've been here for decades and and doing incredibly good work, right down to really grassroots local groups that have no funding, no support, but are turning out leaders and turning out impact on a day-to-day basis. And we saw this firsthand at the Civic Power Fund. We recently ran an, an open funding round and a, basically an open call to fund work that was happening at a truly grassroots level. So really that self-determination principle number one, mm-hmm. but then building power and, and having the potential to win change locally. and and just the applications we got through were absolutely mind blowing in terms of the type of spontaneous work that is happening all across this country. And there's something in that for me about like, how do we tell that story? How do we really allow people who have access to money, who want this change to see and hear firsthand from the work rather than being told we know it works or, or yeah. constantly reading a policy document or having that influence, just really being able to show the change that's happening in communities because of this practice and how we could elevate that through funding. And look
0: on that, like I think that one of the challenges with organising that I imagine you're encountering with s- some funders is, is the scale challenge, which is that people like to think that they're going to fund something that's big. You know, fix the world, please, in one in one funding grant. Whereas organizing can't be that. Organizing, by its nature, is built out of its smallness. You know, the one-to-one meeting, the the intimacy that comes from lifting up the dignity of every single person to be a leader and have self-determination. And so that the story becomes so tricky because there's a can be a disconnect in how we understand the scale of our of our impact.
1: I think that is really really true and. And I wanted to tell two stories that I think respond to that. One is a very current one, which is some of the organizations we have the, the privilege of working with are really turning this on its head. One is an organization called the Center for Progressive Change. They're currently running a nationwide campaign on sick pay, but that campaign came out of organizing. So their founder, Amanda Waters she knew that there needed to be mechanisms to connect that local organizing work in with national change. And she spent the first kind of most of the times of building that organization first just listening to communities and really was embedded within communities that were domestic workers and cleaners and understanding what they needed first and foremost and building their power and building their capacity to achieve change. And this issue of sick pay emerged time and time again. And through that kind of hyper-local work, she's built a deeply empowered constituency for change that is now mobilizing around key members of parliament, having conversations at a local level to shift hearts and minds. And at the same time has brought the trade union Congress along. She's brought some of the biggest mental health charities we have in this country along, making this issue that's relevant. And I think for me that shows so perfectly how that really hyper-local work is what makes it sustainable, what makes Mm. it passionate and impactful. But if you connect it in to the national level and those systems, the capacity to achieve big picture change is fairly endless. And I think the second story going back and I'm I'm struggling not to just quote Marshall constantly because he was just so brilliant <laughs> on Monday, but I'm I'm doing my best that he talked about this um in addressing us on Monday, this sense of who gets to decide what's small. And I that's know, the thing so I come true. back to if we only look at systems change, we just misunderstand how systems change is actually made and he used the example of the bus boycotts that mm. at the time this sense of being seen as quite a localized small action in the face of the of the yeah. rights abuses that the african american population were experiencing But what that catalyzed in terms of that community's understanding of their power and their purchasing power and what that ultimately led to. And I would take that one step further to say that in the UK, we had our own bus boycotts in Bristol and the West Indian community in Bristol learned from the actions of the civil rights movement and brought a really similar approach into Bristol. Again, used their purchasing power and then drummed up public sympathy. And you can draw a direct line between that local action in the US Mm -hmm. to a local action In the UK, to the race equality legislation we now have in this country. Yeah. And that hindsight is a wonderful thing. That benefit of hindsight is a wonderful thing. No, no, but
0: you're talking about
1: sort of learning from evaluation. Exactly. (laughs) Learning, learning. It's like we have this, we have evidence that this works. And so being able to kind of trust that Mm. following what communities want and need and building community power is the ticket. I think that's the thing that we have to change to kind of shift that mindset on its head.
0: Yes, As you, what you're calling for in a sense is to disorganize and reorganize using, it's an organizing phrase, how we think about scale. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's n- none of this simplicity social change is about distributing Coca-Cola, you gotta have it everywhere, but actually this, the where things work and how that, like where things work, like strategic locations like in, in Birmingham, but also how it works that leaders lead your own change has a has a capacity to scale things in an entirely different way than we are, traditionally look at scale in the first place.
1: Yes, and I will say that um, I spend a lot of time here sharing your article on <laughs> scale, <laughs> and we have learned a lot from
0: you and your writing so on this topic. Um, beautiful mutual admiration society is building here. Apologies, everyone, but yeah, th- yeah, I think. It, but it's a really important, exactly. it's a really important concept because mobilising has a particular. Uh, brilliance when it comes to affecting a, a form of scale because it can gather so many people in a, against a specific outrage. What com- organising does is it also can scale but it does so in a just a really different way and it's being able to have a under- recognition that being able to have outsized impact, let's use that phrase rather than scale, outsized impact is able to be achieved using a variety of different forms of people power and community organising can have outsized impact too it's going to look different to a protest
1: yes exactly and and i i i was thinking about this on friday i had some friends visiting from the us and so took them to parliament they'd never been to london before and it was a the house of commons wasn't sitting so we went and watched some debates in the house of lords which is a very different experience to the kind of braying in the commons and it was a private member's bill Friday. So it was one of those days where the issues that campaigners were passionate about were getting a hearing and and eventually leading to legislative change. And I was really inspired to see um, Lord Best, who is a passionate housing campaigner in the Lords, bring through a bill that had started in the commons with Bob Blackman MP, who's a passionate housing uh, kind of campaigner in the commons. I'd worked with both of them at shelter over 10 years ago. So they were still there working day and night on housing. And they'd brought this bill that was just about to be passed around, essentially targeting unscrupulous private landlords that were getting support from the state for the most vulnerable communities and households. And they said this bit at the end of the bill when it happened, or when it passed, which was essentially the hard work starts now. And that for me is the crux of it, that we can mobilize to win and we need to mobilize to Mm. win, but to really embed those changes and make sure that those wins like continue to benefit communities, society and win and ladder up that systems change. The hard work starts after the win in terms of maintaining that power, holding governments to account, changing our politics and changing our systems. And that's why we underinvest in organizing at our peril.
0: Yes. I, and also, but also what I like about what, what you're describing, and um, I'm going to ask you a reflective twi- question to finish on, but what I like about what you're describing is that there's a recognition that we need lots of different forms of people power. We need those politi- poli- good politicians in parliaments, wherever they may be, in, in councils, doing a piece of work that's necessary. We also need people mobilising, we also need people playing by the rules and doing advocacy. And when it comes to being able to create new leaders in community affected communities, where people can exercise self-determination over their lives, that's the role of organising. And we need that too. And the issue for us at the moment is that we don't have enough resources for that, hence your work. So my final, I mean, look, you say you're not an expert. Look, I think there's lots of people who claim to be experts who are not experts. So, mother, you've been in this space for for um, you've been in the organising space for a long time. You're now you've thrown yourself into the philanthropic space to try and to try and shake it up to be able to create a resource pipeline for for community organising here in the United Kingdom. I'm sure that people, some of the people listening to this story, are the kind of people who are going, ah, oh, we've always been trying to get more resources, but it's so tricky to to work with. F- Philanthropy, whether it's a, whether it's about organising or something else, I guess my final question is: What have you learnt? Like, what have you learnt about what makes uh, for a successful advocacy, successful engagement with philanthropy, particularly about engaging them on questions of organising? But just like, what makes that work more successful when it comes to engaging resources for the for the art of social change?
1: That's a really good question, and my answer sort of links back to one of the other points you made, which is around essentially organizing within funding. Because I think that I have seen, and and it's so valid that there's so much anger around how scant resources are and how hard it is to access funders. And that kind of creates an oppositional dynamic that I'm not sure is always that healthy. And I think there's some questions for me around how do we build relationships so that people understand each other and understand the work? and understand that actually a lot of people who work inside funders are as passionate about change as you are, but they're just operating in a different system and struggling with their own internal challenges. So how do we really build those bonds and connections and find the common ground? How can we do some peer to peer learning? Some of the most effective work that I've seen is where funders influence each other Mm -hmm. and where they come to the table together and they take risks together. So I think there's a question for me about like, how can we do more of that? And then I think it goes back to that final point we were discussing around narrative is part of it, but it's also storytelling. So what are we doing to really tell the story of this work and not just what it's currently doing, but its potential to achieve more? And how can we collectively work together to tell more of those stories?
0: Yeah, I love... You, you're a natural organiser. I think Alinsky was the one who said, no permanent friends and no permanent enemies. Like we build relationships and seeing people as an enemy... Even if it's a funder who's not funding, and there people get irritated, it's not helpful. It's not helpful to to, to walk walk like that. But you, being able to apply those lessons in how we really build relationships with funders, even if it can be frustrating, and and being able to to create this cover, they're very helpful insights. I think for anyone who's listening, you know, if you're seeking out more funding, using those relational principles that building relationships with people before. Going for, going for resources and all that sort of stuff, the, the, the instincts that we have around organising are incredibly powerful instincts to have with resourcing organising as well.
1: I, I think that's true. I think the final thing I would say, or well, not I think I know, is it does rely on there being an openness. And one of the challenges that we see all the time is funding can feel like a really closed shop. Mm. And in a way, the Civic Power Fund is very privileged to have got in there and to be able to build these relationships and to have this access and to have the capacity to kind of try and shift these norms And for most of the small community groups that are organising on a day-to-day basis, they don't have the time for this. They're kind of patching up holes in service provision. They're responding to the urgent needs of their community. So there's a big picture question for me around what is philanthropy's role in being much more open and much more porous and much more easy to access, but equally what's our kind of collective community role in going back again to the principles of organising, of understanding our power and how we use that power to encourage cajole and, and influence philanthropy to go in that direction. I love it again. So
0: sometimes we might need to organise in a way that an organiser might at an assembly where we pin philanthropy and put our pressure to bear on some of those institutions to say, you need to change and we've organised enough power to ask you to nicely, but firmly. And then at other times, a softer relationship as possible. The world as it is isn't always a very nice place, but but I love the fact that I'm talking to you about how it might be changed. Martha, thank you for joining us today. It's been a delight to have you on Changemakers.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Changemakers is hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all of our episodes. This is Series 7, so there is plenty to be inspired by in our back catalogue. Our digital producer at Changemakers is Lachlan Hodgson. Our audio producer is Jules Wookerup. Our series sponsor is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers, and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at Sydney.edu.au backslash policy-lab. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast, we're on Twitter. At Changemakers99, I'm on Twitter at Tats with two T's. Check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all of our stories. And don't forget to look at the video content from our organising school if you want
1: to take a deeper dive into the art of changemaking.